these refugees are trying to avoid being fingerprinted. So they're running through the corn and you can see there's a whole group ahead of them as well. And they're trying to avoid the police, but I think there's heat sensors all around here. Heat sensors that will pick them up, they will get picked up by the Hungarian police. Kia ora, welcome to this episode in Season 2 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, Church Minister, Chaplain and Radio Broadcaster. Recovering is a Media Chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode I take the opportunity to sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them, both personally and professionally. In this episode I sit down with Rachel Smalley. Rachel has been a well-known personality within the media landscape in Aotearoa, New Zealand for many years. She's known for gracing our TV screens and our radio waves. After a break of a few years, having stepped away from hosting Early Edition from 5 to 6am on News Talk ZB in 2017, she's back on the newly formed Today FM, hosting First Light, weekday mornings from 5 to 6.30am. I sat down to talk with Rachel about her coverage of the conflict in Syria. The conflict began in 2011 and still continues today, leading to one of the greatest refugee disasters our world has ever seen. Rachel played an integral part in helping World Vision raise awareness of the plight of those refugees. I was working for Tearfund at the time, another aid and development agency pushing to help the refugees. So I was across the conflict and had a deep respect for the part that Rachel was playing in highlighting the issue. It was an honour to sit down and have this conversation with her. Kia ora, Rachel. Thank you for joining me in our humble little studio here in Penrose. And can I say just what a pleasure it is having you here. Uh, since we've communicated for a number of years now via other means, it's nice to have you in the flesh. So yeah, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, you've had one heck of a journey when it comes to media, and that journey has this significant gap of a number of years where you had stepped away from what it is that you were doing at ZB, and now you're back in on Today FM. I'm really interested to know, your, your career is colourful and it's varied, uh, television, radio, starting out in sports reporting on ZB, I believe, yeah. moving into television, some time overseas, back here, uh, back into ZB, The Gap. What led to the gap? Wow, gosh. Um, I think if I was to put one word around the gap, it would be just a sense of isolation. I think, um, you know, I ended up going to uh, a counsellor in the lead up to the gap when I when I stepped away from media. And um, I think that's what, what I felt was uh, incredibly isolated. I was always sort of doing the earlies. I was also going through what my counsellor said, um, a midlife transition, which I think probably by any other term is probably midlife crisis, where you just reach a point in your life and you think, where am I going? What am I doing? Um, probably hadn't made some of the, the best decisions, um, had become really quite isolated. Um, I was living out on the West Coast in Piha um, with you know my husband at the time and our son. And um, throughout that process, I'd just become pretty reclusive, really. Um, and I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and I went and spoke to um, a number of uh, sort of senior women in the business community. And um, I was trying to work out what I could do. Because if you're a journalist, you don't really know what your skill base is. You talk a lot or you write or, you know, you're on camera. Um, so what, where does that fit into the world outside of the media? 
Um, and I had some really good advice from women who said, you're exhausted. You're getting up at, you know, three o'clock in the morning. You have been doing this show for, you know, over three years now. You can't possibly decide on your future. So extend your mortgage. So, you know, take your mortgage out, extend your mortgage so that you don't have to, to use it to pay your mortgage for six months and um, give yourself a break. And I think in our mindsets, normally you'd be like, oh, that's going to make me sort of go financially backwards or what have you. But actually, it was the smartest thing I think I've ever done. And I took six months out. Um, the day I uh, left uh, ZB, um, I got on a plane with um, my husband and my son, and we took off uh, on a trip um, around the world to see friends. Um, we went to the Middle East, we went to London, where we used to live, where my son was born. Um, and I took some time out, and it took me a long time to sort of find out what it was that I really wanted to do. But it was a pretty bumpy ride to get there, and it was really challenging to step away from the media because I think I'd only ever defined myself as a journalist. And so who was I if I wasn't that? And that was really the journey that I went on to find out. Mm. And in our Pākehā culture, our identity is very much wrapped up in what we do. It's yeah. wrapped up in our work. So out of interest then, what did you find? So really, really interesting, actually. I um, saw a job that popped up on uh, Seek for uh, a general manager of communications and storytelling for KiwiBuild, for the Ministry of Housing. Mm. And so I had thought that I would go into maybe a corporate or whatever, you know, go into a corporate. Not quite sure I do first said corporate, but that's what I was going to do. Um, and then ended up working in government for the most tumultuous year, I think, of my life, really. Um, and uh, I was involved with the KiwiBuild program. And um, I still believe it's a great policy. I still think it's uh, a great program, but it was just communicated badly and it wasn't really communicated at all. Um, and the government put these extraordinary timeframes on it. Like in a year, you know, we'll build 10,000 homes or 1,000 homes or what have you. And all of those um, targets, if you like, were just totally unachievable. Mm. The Kiwi Build's still going and it's still enabling people. We just, you know, no one talks about it. But what it gave me was a really incredible insight into government, as in the, the function of government, um, for, into the, 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 the public sector. Um, to understand the machinations of that beast that is in Wellington. And mm. that has been an absolute game changer for me. And what that also, that pivotal year, allowed me to do was um, meet a number of people who I knew that I needed to grow and I needed to change, I needed to learn. And I met a number of people and they said, why don't you do the Global Women Breakthrough Leadership Program? And so put that on the old mortgage as well. Mortgage is getting higher and higher. Um, but it was a one-year program, which I began towards the end of my time there. And that threw me into an environment of 30 remarkable women mm -hmm. who I spent a year with. And so I'd gone from being really isolated to suddenly being sort of immersed with these extraordinary women. And um, I feel like I've kind of never looked back. It was, a, it was a remarkable 12 months. And that year with Global Women really changed the direction of my life, really. Mm. That isolation... Is in a time and in an industry that demands that you put yourself out there and you put your opinions out there and you say stuff and you get you work to get noticed. And I remember at some points in your career where you said stuff that then got you hammered. Yeah. I think about you rightly pointing out the problems of lack of representation of women in some of the key roles. And since then, we now have Heather uh, hosting the yeah, drive show on ZB. Job. We've yeah. got Tova on the breakfast show on today, yes. which is a fabulous shift. But you got, you got hammered 
so that isolation, I would imagine, would have exacerbated the yes. sense of what was coming at you during those times. It's really interesting, actually, because I remember two voices during that time, and 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 you know how I wrote that and how I was critiquing that and how it was triggered that conversation was because uh, Mary Wilson was doing the drive show on uh, RNZ on national radio, and she had moved aside and, you know, RNZ had said gone into a more sort of senior position behind the scenes and John Campbell had come into that position. And that meant that um, there was, I'll try and remember this now, there was, you know, John Campbell was in a prime time role, so was Mike Hosking, so was Paul Henry, uh, so was Corin Dan, I think Susie was with him on the breakfast show. But we had wall-to-wall sort of middle-aged um, white wealthy men, mm. and and absolutely they need to have a voice. But but I felt that some of the big issues facing New Zealand, they weren't necessarily representative of some of the challenges that we were facing and the perspectives that you bring to your interviewing. Um, and when I voiced that, I did it in a pretty clumsy way. I think um, I wrote it in a pretty clumsy way. And I and what came back at me was, um, you're jealous, you're frustrated, you're on mm. that you know shift, and and. Um, I'm really grateful to, you know, I remember two voices who um, came to me and said, you know, keep going. Or one who was in support. Simon Wilson was one from the Herald on Twitter. He was like, hang on, don't give her a hard time. Let's look at this. Mm. And then actually Paul Thompson from RNZ said, no, you know, there's a valid point here. And then I remember sitting in Piha and sort of head in hands going, you know, you've done it again. You know, they've got the wrath of everybody coming at you. And it's, you know, that sort of level of abuse is, is pretty harrowing. Um, and I remember um, randomly, and I didn't really know her at the time, Josie Pagani called me, got my number, called me, and she was like, keep going. Mm. And this was on the Friday, and over the weekend, the abuse kicked off. And, and, um, and she said, Monday, go back on air and stand by what you said. And that was, you only need one voice, and that's what I've learned. And I try and do that now with other younger journos coming through. You only need one person to say, it's okay, keep going. And I'm really grateful to those people who at that time reached out because, um, you know, they helped me sleep eventually at night, you know, the following week. And they reassured me that actually it was an important thing to say, but I probably just needed to say it a little bit less clumsily. Um, <laughs> but it's, I, I love the fact now that I've got, you know, there's, I'm surrounded by young women and more and more women on air. And I feel like I'm kind of the the old matriarch at the side, great Auntie Rach in the early hours, but it's fabulous. It's it's changed so much for the better. Yeah, I, w- I would actually say that you're probably a significant part of the catalyst for that shift because whether people agree or not, you need voices raising those things in order to create the wave that will cause the shift. So then when people go to appoint those positions, there's this voice in the back of their head. And I think anybody who's attuned to media would now have your voice in the back of their head when it comes to appointing some of those uh, roles. So I think you need to be commended for standing up, whether it was clumsy or not, and taking the feedback and not backing down, you need to be commended. I, I have to say the one area of the media, well, there are a number of areas, but you know, the media critique the corporate world and, 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 the, and the world we live in for a lack of diversity but diversity, as we know, is so much more than gender. And um, I think there absolutely is a place for all the wonderful uh, programs like the Hui 
and Tangata Pacifica. Um, but I would love to see that as just part of mainstream broadcasting rather than having you know Maori and Pacifica journalists reporting to Maori and Pacifica audiences. I would love to see that more as part of the mainstream because I think the issues we face now with race relations in New Zealand, we should be far better than what we are. And so much of what drives these issues, I think, is xenophobia. And we look at xenophobia as being a bad thing, and, and, it, and it is, the outcome of xenophobia is, but xenophobia is just a fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know and you don't understand, then we're naturally fearful of something, right? And I think to, to integrate more Māori and Pacifica broadcasting and, and issues into just our mainstream every day, um, you know, I think that would be a great thing. So there's still, there's still room for improvement for sure. Mm, I agree entirely. Coming back... Now you're on Today FM, you've had the break of four, four years or so. Yeah. This is a slightly philosophical question, but what do you know now, having learned a whole lot through your experience of the media, now having the gap and having discovered more of yourself, what do you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? I think uh, that's a really simple question. I think when you are in the media, not for everybody, but certainly for me, you live, work and play the media. You never switch off. And you you know, you know the personalities and you tend to compete with your peers and you you know, you're trying to be a stronger interview maybe than them or you're listening to, you know, your head of news or what have you. What time outside of the media gave me was that very important perspective of how the public views politics, how the public views the media and the challenges and the that they see. Uh, and I think I'm, I feel now like I'm um, part of the public more than I'm part of the media when I'm on air. And I'm also 50. Mm. And 50 brought like a resounding kind of, right, it's about time you got comfortable in your shoes now. You know, it, it, it's about time you feel a bit more grown up. And so there's certainly a maturity, I think, to me now. I'm, I'm a little bit thicker skinned, I think. I can, well, I, am I thicker skinned or whether I can just put things in perspective now? better, I think. But I think the knowledge of working in uh, government and the knowledge I gained from working in the private sector and, you know, I run a little business and communications um, and all of that sort of engagement with some of our, you know, I've engaged with some really big brands and big companies and I've got a whole new view on being part of what is everyday society. And I think I bring that to my broadcasting and I'm so grateful to have that behind me now. Mm. There's a project that you have running alongside all this, which has clearly been a significant part of your world since you stepped away. Yeah. Uh, the Medicine Gap. Yeah. Tell us about the Medicine Gap. Medicine Gap's um, uh, essentially a campaign to um, inform and help New Zealanders understand and well New Zealanders understand the situation we all find ourselves in in terms of our unfunded medicines crisis. And the goal of the Medicine Gap is although it's sort of is always prodding and pushing it at, at government to do more and for Pharmac, our procurement agency for medicines, to do more. Um, essentially, it's about making New Zealanders or helping New Zealanders to understand the predicament we're all in because essentially we're all one diagnosis away from being in a situation where we either have to go and give a little or extend the mortgage or, you know, lean into our parents for help with medicines, modern medicines that we should be able to access in this country. There's a bigger debate here about the cost of medicines and how, you know, capitalist pharmaceutical companies, how they, uh, you know, they put the pricing structure around these. But in the middle of all of this are just everyday New Zealanders who are, you know, pretty much failed by our medicine system. So uh, I, that came about um, where I was introduced to a woman, um, Fiona Tollich, 
And Fiona is, she has SMA, spinal muscular atrophy. And that's a condition which she never talks about that she has. But it's, you get, you get type 1, type 2, or 3, or 4. Type 1 and type 2, brutal. Uh, all of them are brutal, but type 1, you won't survive past a year. Type 2 is horrific as well. They're all challenging. And there are three medicines to fund which essentially shut this condition down. And uh, we don't fund any of them. And so I was introduced to Fiona about this. And I thought, this is, this is you know, really challenging. We're a Western country. We're a rich country. We should be able to support these and help these babies and these people and these mothers and parents. Um, and I saw in Fiona something. She was so desperate to try and bring about change. And she had been lobbying the government for a very long time, a long time. And for me, I thought, and this is what I learned through the Global Women Program, you know, I took time off to find out what it is that I do. And it came back to, what am I? I'm a storyteller. That's mm. what I do. And, and, that's, and that's sort of my skill set. And I thought what we needed to do, the more I looked at this issue and started researching how I could help Fiona, I realized there was people with gut cancer, bladder cancer, forms of melanoma, forms of breast cancer, um, bowel cancer, lung cancer. If we get any of these cancers, we don't fund many of the immunotherapies that we need to treat them. And then there were rare disorders. And then there were conditions like multiple sclerosis and cystic fibrosis and all of these conditions where we don't fund the modern medicines. And all of these advocacy groups are trying to tell the story of that, but they're all doing it separately. And it's easy to bat people off singly. And I thought, what if I tried to group all of these uh, conditions together and started telling the story of all of the diseases and disorders that we don't treat in this country through a human lens. So speaking to people who are really sick. Um, and it's been a remarkable year or so. I've, the research I've done and what have you is, um, has opened my mind massively to um, our health system. And um, we, it's on a platform, themedicinegap.co.nz, and I um, tipped in 5,000 into it to get the website up and running. And I know through my time in the private sector, a lot of people have got a bit of money and I've gone out and shaken the tin and I'm like, I need money for social media. I need money for flights so I can get around the country to meet people and things and see, you know, meet people around the country. And so that's where it is. And I think people, um, people keep saying to me, are you funded by pharmaceutical companies or who's behind <laughs> you? Who's, I'm like, no one is. Um, but it's just this little pro bono thing that I do um, where I th I'm trying, you know, spurred on by Fiona to give a voice to the voiceless. You know, if you're sick and you're vulnerable, um, the last thing you can really be doing is being out there, you know, protesting um, mm. when you need to be treated in a, you know, in a hospitals and what have you. So the Medicine Gap will keep storytelling and keep um, telling the stories of people who need access to medicines for as long as, as we need to. What I hear in that is the DNA of probably every single media person I've sat down and interviewed, that desire to to tell story and to be a voice on behalf of someone else. So that idea of speaking truth to power yeah. is because there's a recognition that something has gone wrong. In order to recognize that something has gone wrong, you need to have noticed a victim uh, and then that voice gets raised. So totally in terms of the question about transferable skills, it's yeah. that DNA being enacted just in a different sector. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's uh, difficult uh, and challenging and, and uh, uh, but nowhere near the people that I'm speaking to, the challenges that they're going through. But I, it also puts me in front of people who are extraordinarily resilient. You know, you're told 
that under the current medicine system, you've got six months to live. And then I'm speaking with those people who are like, no, I need more. I need to be able to spend more time. I need to get my children to high school. I need to. And the, what people go, the lengths they go to, to extend their life. And it's also made me understand, because sometimes we, we're always looking for something that's curative, right? We're like, well, it only gives you two years and it costs 150 grand. You go, ah, you know. But really, and if that's the space that you're in, what is that two years with your children worth to you? What is two years on this planet worth to you? And we're very dismissive if it's not a cure. Um, and I think there's a really interesting conversation about how you how you elongate life and, and the pathway to death. What is that pathway to death? And how do New Zealanders want, as well as living, how do we want to die? You know, we've looked at, you know, areas like euthanasia, for example, but what about the journey down the road to that? And so... I've had some really profound conversations with people and their perspective on life and uh, cancer or living with a genetic disorder. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I am in awe uh, of what I've learned from speaking with people. I don't um, fear being diagnosed with something anymore. It's, it's an inevitability, right? Mm. That's how we live. We will all be diagnosed with something one day. Um, and how we can treat ourselves or what approach we take to the next, you know, following years is um, something I wish New Zealanders would maybe have bigger conversations around. And the medicine gap's kind of in that space. Mm. Which brings us quite well to the story that we're going to discuss, the holding on of life, the, uh, the preciousness of life. We're going to talk about Syria and the Syrian conflict. So for those who might not be overly familiar with the story, give us, a, give us an overview of the story before we dive into some of the detail and how you were involved. So, gosh, Syria, the, the, the crisis there um, was really part of the, the Arab Spring. Mm, 2011. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it sort of began in Tunisia and it started to, you know, move through into places like Libya and what have you and, and, and uh, into Syria. And Syria uh, has a really interesting dynamic and uh, in that the, the, it's run by the Assad family. They are Alawites. Um, which is an interesting small minority religion in Syria. Uh, and it's a country with uh, Sunni and Shia Muslims as well. And the Assad family have run, you know, Syria for a, a long time. It's a wealthy country, but, you know, there's no f freedom of speech there. Um, and, you know, is it a free and fair election? Well, you know, we'll leave you to answer that. But when the Syrians began to rise up, um, that was when the Syrian army, you know, really decided to crush that uprising. Um, and then it became this sort of vortex, um, you know, ISIS arrived over the years and it's just become um, a failed state. Hmm. And in the early years of that, um, the refugees started fleeing to the, to, well, they were Syrians and then became refugees and they crossed the border and they crossed the border into places like Turkey, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, Jordan, Lebanon. And um, I was working at the time for TV3 doing uh, First Sign. And my background, of course, is in uh, Sky News in the UK. And I spent uh, years over there working for Sky and also worked in Ireland as well, too. And through my time there, I developed a really strong knowledge of the Middle East. Middle East, obviously, really important to, um, the, to Europe and the UK. So we were always, I was always producing stories on it. So I've got a real interest in that area. And I think World Vision probably picked up by some of my uh, hosting on First Sign that I knew a thing or two about the Middle East and understood it. And they approached me and said, would I consider going across to do some reporting over there? And that's how it first began. 
uh, with World Vision, that relationship. And I went over in, I'm going to forget the year now, 2013, I think it was, the first year, and did a story, met a young refugee, and then went back two years later in 2015. And that's really when things started to uh, ignite, I guess, in New Zealand. We ran the Forgotten Millions campaign, mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, we went over there with an idea of trying to raise $150,000, but the journey um, over the next, the course of the next year took us down a million different traps mm. um, and really kind of defined my life and my career, I think. Mm. Just to broaden the understanding of the conflict a little bit, my understanding is uh, leading into it, leading into the Arab Spring, there's quite a bit of drought. And so you had a lot of yeah. people from rural areas heading into the cities, which then put a strain on the resources in the cities. The government didn't handle that well. Yeah. And so people started to push back and they saw voices being raised in places like Tunisia and it, it took yeah. off. And if we're talking about the Middle East, we're talking about relatively young countries that were divided up largely by the UK and France with borders that encapsulated people very different from each other. So you look at Syria and on one side you've got the Kurds who probably need a nation of their own encompassing part of Syria and Turkey. Turkey has its issues there. Kurdistan too. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got the Sunni-Shia divide that you just mentioned and then this little minority group that's overseeing uh, all of of that. And then you've got the third parties too who are playing out their conflicts with each other, Russia, the United States, Iran, even Israel, uh, playing out their part in that as well. It's just a melting pot for a massive conflict. And then in terms of the numbers, we're talking, uh, last I saw, 13 million people displaced from their homes. Over 6 million of them them have poured out of Syria. Lebanon, which I know you've got a lot of contact with, a population only slightly larger than New Zealand, absorbing something like 1 1.5 million refugees. Yeah. That's going to destabilize a country. Absolutely. And when you look at Lebanon and all the challenges it's got already, I mean, Lebanon is this sort of melting pot of, um, you know, Christians, Sunni and Shia. Uh, within Lebanon, they have uh, a military group called uh, Hezbollah and they are Shia and they're quite uh, connected with Iran. And so there's all those sorts of layers that come into it too. And like you say, the proxy conflicts of a little bit like you see to a certain degree at the moment, Russia and America sort of in Ukraine, there's layers of that and, 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 and years and decades of complexity that are all playing out. But uh, with Lebanon, absolutely, um, it had, it's threatened to destabilize and still does every day. And so the Lebanese weren't in a position to really offer uh, Syrians anything other than a patch in the Bekaa Valley of where they could sort of put tents up. And remember also, and this is what I learned when I was in Lebanon, there's close to half a million Palestinian refugees mm-hmm. that live in Lebanon, you know, people who still have the keys to their homes. And Lebanon was battling with that, let alone welcoming in, um, you know, just droves of people coming in from Syria. So um, Lebanon was really where we went in the first instance to start reporting on what some of the refugees, um, the experiences that they had. And we, I went with uh, Chris Clark, who was the CEO of World Vision at the time, and we would just walk through the refugee camps um, with a, a woman who's amazing, Patricia Moama, who's humanitarian, who worked for uh, World Vision Lebanon. Um, and we would sit inside these tents and just hear the stories of refugees. And that human-to-human connection is, you know, that those stories will stay with me forever. It was mm. uh, 
distressing and enlightening and troubling time. Yeah. Talk to me about the personal impact of that because, and again, I know people who just imagine the media person as the hardened person who goes and gets delighted at blood because there's a story here. Yeah. I've not encountered any media person like that. And I've sat in rooms in the West Bank. I've sat in slums in India with Tear Fund and heard people's stories, wanted to solve the problem, yeah. have not been able to solve the problem, just put a little drop in the bucket. Yeah. The personal impact of that is huge. It's massive. It's massive. Um, and I don't think I recognize that at the time. Um, but the stories I heard were... Uh, relatable to every human being on earth. And when I went into Syria, I thought, I was on a plane flying in there, so I into Lebanon, and thinking, how am I going to make this relatable for a New Zealand audience? It's a man-made disaster. It's the Middle East. It's the Arab world. It's a war. Who gives to that? You know, we mm. give to cyclones and tornadoes and earthquakes. Do we give to the Arab world? We don't. And I thought, all I can do, in the end, it took me the entire flight to think about what strategy I would take, and I thought, I'm just going to try and report um, the stories as they're told to me. And um, really, it, the stories began to connect only after about three or four days. And it was women in New Zealand who connected with them. I can remember one story talking to a mother, and it still um, breaks my heart because in the moment of vulnerability, I judged her. And I can't forgive myself for that. She was sitting with her baby, and she's a refugee, for goodness sake. She, her milk had dried up. And she had got access to some formula. And while we were in the tent, she went to make the formula. Now, they have nothing. Mm. And she had a bottle, which was pretty dirty. And she was trying to make it with cold water. And as I saw her pouring it into the bottle, me and my Western vision uh, was like, no, no, I put my hands out. No, 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 no. Because she hadn't sterilized it. And that is just drilled into every woman. You know, when if you're bottle feeding a child, the importance of sterilizing it. And she put her hand up and said, you tell me what I must do. Mm. It's the difference between my child drinking food or eating food and not. I can't sterilize it. I have no, I can't, I can't heat water. I can't boil anything. And I felt so judgmental in that moment because I, as a mother, had judged her immediately and look at the situation that she was in. And, and, and I went through so many environments where, um, you know, I was meeting women who were academics, mm. pharmacists, teachers, not that it matters what they did, but these were women who, um, I, they were highly relatable to me. And they were just doing what we all want to do, which is do the best for our children and feed our children. And I increasingly, the more women I saw and the more stories I heard, um, I realized that actually I just had to tell the stories from their perspective. And I think that's what really connected with, you know, New Zealanders. I remember talking about a woman who had been um, caught by ISIS and surrounded and they'd been uh, on a mountain and in the end uh, Obama actually uh, authorised airstrikes to around ISIS had surrounded them all to, to clear mm, them so they I could remember clear, it. Yeah. Mount I uh, completely forgot the name I want to say Sinjin and it was that smaller religious group yes um, Yassidi yeah that's it yeah and uh, and this and she had been stuck up there and, and they had found a sheep and they'd got some milk from a local farmer um, but she just breaks her heart her daughter went into a coma um, 
beautiful daughter, Rohit, and she uh, had she survived. They got down the mountain, and there was you know tents and humanitarian assistance at the bottom. But you know she still talks about walking past um, you know baby's corpse hmm. on the way down the mountain, and you know saying, you know I had to. I've got to save my child so she doesn't end up wrapped in a sheet under a, a tree like that other baby had. So, you know, every mother loves their child. You know, every mother wants to do what's right for their, their child. And she was just living her life with her family like we all do. And then just such massive upheaval. And now she's fighting to keep her, her baby alive. And I tried to tell those stories um, to make it to make people understand, because we so often talk about refugees and the way we talk about utes or you know structures. It's a it's a thing, but but behind that term are Franks and Rachels and everyday people. And I think that was the compelling moment for me um, to to understand the humanity of the situation. And there, by the grace of God, we all go. And I know one of the women said to me. As I was leaving a tent, and you know, they reach out and touch her forearm, and she said, "You know, Rachel." And I said, "Yes." And she said, "Enjoy the peace that you have." Mm. And for me, knowing that I was, you know, flying back into New Zealand, you know, um, and I still remember that coming down Ponsonby Road and everyone outside having a Chardonnay Summer's mm. Day, uh, just thinking about how on earth, as you said, you go into these environments and it changes you forever. Um, and I think that's really what spurred on the Forgotten Millions because I couldn't come back and write two stories or three stories and go, right, you know, now what's next? Um, it was comments like that, enjoy the peace that you have. And the other one, which a lot of people said, is that whatever you do, please don't forget us. Please don't forget me. And I took that really personally mm. to keep telling those stories. See, this is the, not going to swear, this is the flipping hard bit that a lot of people, when they see media people telling the story they just don't get uh and i haven't had to i haven't had to do it in the same way but uh experiencing slums in india or conflict in the west bank and talking to mothers who had their teenage sons dragged off by the police not knowing where they where they are coming back is flipping hard it is really hard there's a trauma that gets carried by media people who are thrown into those situations telling the story and then they go out for a a drink with their friends and uh, just laughing carrying on without any recognition of the the trauma that's just sitting there because of the things that you've experienced. I mean, walking down Ponsonby, seeing people innocently and rightly enjoying their glass of wine, but it can be hard to hard to watch yeah. that. Yeah, it is. And, and, and that increasingly, um, I think, made me a bit acidic at times to first world problems. Which is wrong again, because if it's your first world problem, we live in the first world, right? It's, 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 your, it's your right to have an issue with something. But for me, you know, someone throwing their hands up in the air because the power had gone off for, you know, a couple of hours and you know, in the middle of washing their hair or, you know, when you're out on the West Coast, your, your pump doesn't work or what have you. All of those things I became quite flippant of. And I'm sure I'd be dismissive of people when they would say things. Um, and I'm and I'm sad. And I'm sad I did that because you know, not everybody had been through those experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. I know. One time, um, there was a man I met called Mustafa, um, and he had 
which is an Islamic. He had what appeared to be almost a turban on his head. And Chris Clark and I went and sat in the tent and he had, um, the reason I'd gone in there is that he had a little girl who was just full of life and she was um, following us and she was beckoning for us to come into a tent. I'm like, I'll get there, I'll get there. And then she, you know, dragged me into a tent. And there was three children and Mustafa and his wife. And instantly I, you know, was, your head is, you know, are you okay? And he took off his, the bandage around his head the scarf around his head and I instantly looked down because I'm quite uh, you know blood shy mm. um, and Chris Clark who's you know got a background he's worked in health and what have you he looked and I looked up and he had a small hole on the top of his head and he had been into a, um, a hospital in Syria field hospital because he'd been hit by shrapnel and uh, they'd stitched him all up and he was fine and a year later something had ruptured in the wound. Mm. And when we left, Chris said, it looks like there's a foreign body or something. Something will be, you know, they've left something in there. And you know that Syrian refugees can't get any um, access to any health care. And I was really worried. He was, his, his eyes were bloodshot. Um, it's three beautiful children and his wife. And he, you know, I couldn't do anything. They needed, he said, about, you know, 250 US dollars. And as you know, when you're dealing with refugees, you can't give any money because someone next door will be even more needy of it. Mm. And you can't get into that situation. And I phoned Patricia Moama the week after I got back from Lebanon and said, how was Mustafa? And she said, I'm really sorry to tell you, but he died. And I just, to have sat in front of someone who I could have helped but didn't, and now he's got a wife and three daughters. And so later I went back to Lebanon. Uh, The Forgotten Millions campaign carried on. We ended up taking a team back. It's another story into, into Lebanon to run a marathon. And after the marathon had been run and everybody went back home, the team that I'd sort of taken over, I spent about three or four days, and I said, can you take me to his wife? And I had taken photos of him and laminated them all because they're in a refugee camp because I knew she wouldn't have any images from him. Mm. And they took me into the tent, and I um, took the photos out, and she just held on to them and just, just collapsed, sobbing. And the little girl was there who was a little bit older now by, you know, um, eight or nine months. And she picked up the photo and she kept turning it to look behind it. And she hadn't seen her father since he died. And I wonder what became of that family. And I hope those laminated photos have stayed with them of their dad. Um, But it was, uh, you know, here I was with, a Syrian woman, you know, and a Kiwi standing there and I hugged her and she was crying and I was crying and there wasn't really any communication, but it was just a, for me, I thought, what if they got left of Mustafa? They've got nothing, mm. but I hope they still have those photos. I may be projecting here a little bit in terms of my own uh, experience, but I think it's reasonably common. One of the things those of us who have dived into those sort of experiences often encounter, though we can do a little bit, we still end up having to grapple with our own uselessness because we can't solve the big thing that I think the story you've just shared is a good example of that. Is that something you've had to grapple with and how have you done so? Look, I don't think I have. Um, I still carry uh, a guilt. What more could I do? Um, and I think 
where it really came to a head was when I left the media and it was in that time where I'm a struggle to talk about this um, the mosque attacks in Christchurch happened and in the lead up you know, throughout the, throughout that time with Forgotten Millions I was on air with ZB I was lobbying the government to do more for the refugee quota to provide more and ultimately John Key did they lifted the quota um, as part of that campaign I had a gala dinner um, and John Key called me the day before and said, can I come? And I said, no. And I said, I don't want you politicising it. Um, and he was like, well, no one says I can't come to a gala dinner. And I said, well, you can come, but you can't speak. <laughs> I can't, can't quite believe I did that. But anyway, and he was like, well, look, can I, um, if you let me speak for two or three minutes, can I tell you what I'm going to say? And I'm like, well, what are you going to say? And he said, well, what you've raised. It was about two million by that stage. He said, the government will match that. And I said, okay, you can come. Um, and so he, you know, he came along and, and the government did do more and they did lift the refugee quota. But I think for me, everything came to a head at the time of the March shootings because I wasn't in the media then. And, and this is an area that I'm really comfortable in and in, in, in dealing with, um, you know, the Muslim faith. Christchurch is my hometown. There were so many complexities going on with it. And I went that that day, the day after, to um, the very first week of, we went to Narawahia for the start of the Global Women Breakthrough Leadership Program. And I was in a room with 30 women, and I, and I can't really tell you how I was feeling other than that I was broken. I was, I had, this sounds um, not a very nice thing to say, I guess, but I think when I first heard the shootings, I thought, please don't let them be Syrian. Please don't let them be Syrian because... You know, I'd lobbied for us to lift the quota because we could do more and we could provide safety and safe haven to some people. And we had the space and we had lifted the quota and Syrians had come in. And how could it be then that those people have been shot in a mosque in my hometown? And just as I arrived at that course, I found out that among the dead were Syrians. And we sat in this room with 30 women, all strangers to me. And we went round the room, and I think I was like number 29. We went round the room and introduced ourselves and who we were and what we did. And at about number 27, everyone had spoken. We had some amazing women. You know, I'm from Deloitte, I'm from Superfund or what have you, and I do this. And everyone was very professional. And then we got round to a woman called Naila Hassan, and she was in a police uniform. And we later talked about if there were two women in that room, you know, as the group, who were probably the ones that we thought had kind of the thickest shell or would be the toughest. And they said it'd be Nyla, Rachel Smalley would be the other one, you know, the perception of me being a bit of a tough nut. And Nyla started to speak and she completely broke down. Mm-hmm. And of course, Nyla Hassan had been leading the response to the mosque shootings. Nyla, for all intents and purposes, looks, I thought... Uh, that she had, her ethnicity may have been Māori, but she is um, an extraordinary woman. She is um, Pakistani. And she's an incredible policewoman. And she broke and started sobbing about what had occurred and trying to lead where she was also a target. She had her own security because she was Muslim. And what had played out on people who were 
very near and dear to her. And then I was the next person and I uh, completely lost it in front of this room full of strangers and I couldn't even speak. Um, that this sense of uh, responsibility or some level of guilt for the fact that Syrians had been killed in the mosque shootings, it's horrific that anybody was, but had the lifting of the refugee quota enabled more Syrians to come into the country and had they come to their death. And I don't think I'll ever be able to reconcile that. Um, how could it happen here and what part did I play in that? I'll just say it bluntly. You'll never be able to reconcile it. No. But I just want to speak to something you said very early there, which expressed almost a guilt for feeling that and thinking very quickly about those Syrians. You wouldn't be human if you hadn't thought that because those are the people that you've been so intimately connected with. So whilst I can't and we can't reconcile that sense of that feeling of having up to the quota, which was the right thing to do. Uh, I don't think you need to feel guilty about having that thought when the when the shooting happened. Um, I think I felt I think I felt guilty because I think I wanted them not to be Syrian, so then I would feel okay yeah. in a way, you know, not okay, but not responsible in some way. And then I think among the first were confirmed who were Syrians, and I recently went on a bit of a, a remarkable journey. Uh, for me, at Today FM, Dallas Gurney asked me to do a podcast called 159, which is the time the shooter was finally apprehended in Christchurch. And as part of that, I went back and interviewed so many people who'd been engaged, so many remarkable people who were, um, who'd lost people, who'd been in the mosques, the police response. And uh, I had a a lot of interviews where um, just long silences of very emotional people, me being very emotional. And I'm really grateful that I had that opportunity. I think in some way it helped me have some connection or some understanding of what played out that day. Rachel, you are, and I mean this very positively, wounded uh, <laughs> by a number of things. Yeah. Um, there's the usual media career stuff that causes its wounds. There's the sitting with refugees in Lebanon and having someone pass away that you sat down with. There's the uh, feelings that you had in relation to Christchurch. You are wounded. In, in my world, the church world, I get really nervous when I see people start churches or lead churches who don't have a limp. People who have a limp are way more valuable in church leadership because they can relate to the human experience a whole lot more. The same goes with media people. Those wounds, as long as they don't turn you to booze and various other yeah. uh, problems, carry a real value. So the gap that you've been on and coming back to Today FM, now having processed some of those wounds, I think makes you a way more valuable radio announcer, media person, than you were previously, and you were valuable previously, but those wounds make you valuable. Mm, I guess so. Thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. You're welcome. Thinking about the future of um, media, uh, I love that you're back. And however long that lasts for, I love that you're back. Uh, but what do you imagine for the future of New Zealand media? So, gosh, so much. But I think 
for me, watching uh, disinformation and trying to validate sources and curate the voice to provide people with as much knowledge and information as we can, as knowledge is power, right? That becomes the biggest challenge. And I think it has to enter our education system. That's what I would like to, to see so that people, everyone, can understand um, the sources of information, how to validate where things are coming from, um, the role you play in spreading misinformation. Um, I would also, in the same vein, love to see, and I've always said this for a long time, one of my great frustrations, and one of the reasons I think I'm in the media, is I can remember as a, as a wee dot watching the news with my parents, and you know, you'd see a story uh, such as, there's been more fighting on the West Bank, Israel says this, um, you know, Hamas says this, um, and you know, um, however many people have died, and it was never contextualised. I was always like, "What? What? Why are they fighting? What's happened?" You know, you never had um, knowledge around that. And um, part of that, I think, in in the issues today, is that we don't have education around religion. Yes, and I <laughs> speaking my language. Yeah. So if you understand, again, it's xenophobia, right? Um, you you know, you you if what you don't know, you fear. But when you understand it, you know, I can see, for example, in, in Yemen, so there's a proxy war going on there between the Saudis, Sunni, and Iran, Shia, and, and, that's what, and there's like massive humanitarian uh, uh, loss and trauma because of that. When you understand that, it helps you understand geopolitics more. And I remember um, during my time in uh, Ireland, I went and did a story on uh, Northern Ireland and how it was a city that had converted from terrorism into tourism. And I spoke with a man called Dr. Harold Good, who was an amazing Methodist minister. And he said to me in this great Northern Irish accent, um, you know, uh, religion has been part of the problem here. It's got to be part of the solution. And it, I've never forgotten that quote because if, you know, uh, you've got issues that you need to understand. You, then, then how are we educating ourselves around that? You've got to understand all the factors that fuel the media today. And religion is a big part of that, uh, for good and for bad. Um, and also, you know, the, the spread of misinformation, I think, you know, what comes down to how, how we address that is educating people to question. So one of my things I always say to it, like my mother, I always have conversations. She'll say, they say this or they say that. And I say, who's they? Well, well, I read it. Who wrote it? Where was the source? Where's it from? Like, check your sources before you go on. And, you know, there's so much misinformation out there. And I think if we can educate people to understand, to question where all their information comes from um, and to understand and to educate yourself around religion. And I'm fortunate that I fell into understanding Islam. I fell into world vision. Chris Clark taught me a lot about religion. And suddenly I understand it more. I understand the spirituality of, of life. And I get it. I'm not scared of it. You know, um, you know, I come from a family that were like, you know, there's Jehovah's Witnesses walking down the streets. Pull the curtains. Why? <laughs> Answer the door. It's okay. You know, and... Um, so I think for me, where does the media go? It, we've, we've got to up our education and our understanding. And that starts with asking more and more questions. And that starts in our schools and encouraging people to understand their sources and understanding things, really impactful things like uh, religion. Um, and I guess when, you, when I talk about information, if you look at the situation in Ukraine at the moment, um, 
And I know I've got um, a number of German friends, for whatever reason, lots of German immigrants. And I had a conversation about what was going on in Ukraine the other day with, with one of them. And he said to me, I said, what do you think? And he said, well, the West have been told about this for a long time. He said, Putin, what he's doing is appalling. But, you know, for a long time, there's been this sort of, and I, and I don't like this term, but it's appropriate, a gentleman's agreement between the former Soviet Union and the West that there would be a buffer between Russia and modern-day Europe. And he said, you know, the West has kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and they've poked the bear, and now what's unfolding in Ukraine is as a result. Now, no one told Putin to do what he did, but we are like, we consider ourselves the good guys. Well, actually, we've got some culpability here on the West. You know, we, the, the suffering that we're seeing in there, had we not continued to push and push and push right up to that Russian border, then maybe that wouldn't have unfolded. So... When I tell people to question where their information is coming from, that's an example. Ask why, you know, rather than just assuming we're the good guys and, and they're the bad guys. Mm. And maybe we can shape some of our leaders of tomorrow to think about another way of another solution other than conflict. Just to note two things, because religion is my game. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Ukrainian uh, Russian war would be so much better informed if people understood the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the split that's happened there, the history, the intertwining of empire, nationalism, how the church was treated under communism in Russia, and therefore what Putin's done there, and what that's led to into the and the intertwining of church and state. That that story could be so much fuller. To circle back to and end here on Lebanon and Syria, and why why that story is so amazing. Syria, for many years, occupied large chunks of Lebanon, yes. subjugated many Christians. So one of the amazing things that's taken place with Lebanese welcoming in Syrian refugees is you've had Christian ministers have then had to look at these people who were historically their enemy, who caused many problems for them, and to go, are we going to help? Are we going to love our enemy? Are we going to look after our neighbor, love our neighbor or not? And they've said yes. And then on the other side, you've had those who were therefore in power go, are we going to accept help from those who we once subjugated? Again, you throw religion into the yeah. mix, that becomes a much more complex, very interesting yeah. story. I think, too, uh, I saw that in Iraqi Kurdistan, mm. and there'd been um, a wave of uh, civilians who'd fled uh, Mosul, come across the border into Iraqi Kurdistan. And I met this remarkable Christian minister when he took me to his church. And in his church was where he said, we've run out of places to sleep. So they sleep in the church, the Muslims sleep in the church and you said and I've got children and you'll know this better than me there's sort of a bit of a sacred place around where you speak from this big sort of wooden platform yeah the altar yes and he said I've got kids who put their pillows on there and sleep yes. on there and that was really incredible and I, and I also remember you know when you talk about some of the guidance that uh, the comments or the, or, the, or the quotes that I've had from religious leaders he was one and I said I said this situation is just hopeless he was like no he mm. said we are helpless but we're never without hope. Everybody must always have hope. And I thought that was a really um, insightful thing to say as well. And I always say that. There's always hope. Yes. No one can rob you of hope for whatever situation, whether it's a first world issue with a Western politics or, or what have you. 
no one can deny you hope. Mm. You're always going to hang on to that. Mm. And there's a, there's a wonderful Bible verse that mentions how suffering leads to perseverance. Perseverance leads to character. Character leads to hope. Uh, so I think that's been encapsulated well yeah. there. Rachel, I've wanted to have this conversation for many years, so it has been an honor. Thank you. Thank you. It's been um, cathartic for <laughs> sure. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down for this kōrero. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series, and thanks to you for listening. I really do appreciate it. Also, a big thanks to Josh Couch and Steph So for producing this podcast, and Mick Andrews for his magical audio editing. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who'd like it. And remember to follow to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media. We demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and you want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up and the coffee's on us. Music